Have you ever heard of anybody stockpiling gravel because they thought it would become in short supply? I have. It happened in the church. I want to tell you about it. There was a man who was put into a very high rank in the ministry, and then from there, for some reason or other, ended up as the sort of director of the development of feast sites. And he ended up in Mount Pocono area. And I got word one time that, for some reason, I really think it had to do with the price, because apparently sort of like energy, you know, like oil, if you go out here, like the uh, State Highway, De- Highway Department will have gravel pits out here where they'll stock stockpile gravel and things to use in asphalt and road building. And I'm sure the price varies from time to time with the gravel producers, rock crushers and haulers and so on. And so in order to get a bargain, he probably just bought a lot more gravel than we really needed. But I thought it was rather humorous to be stockpiling gravel. What I'm getting at is a new country western song I heard for the first time yesterday that alleges that everything seems to come along in ones. And it says that there is only one New York and one Fifth Avenue and, you know, things like one Statue of Liberty, and there's only one you. And there is only one Paris and one Mona Lisa and one Leaning Tower of Pisa, and there's only one you. And it goes on about this sort of little love song, little ditty, about everything comes in one. Now, in one sense of the word, that is very, very true, because there is only one of you, And there's only one of me, and I'm sure many people say thank goodness for that. You are unique, and there is no one else exactly like you. The FBI has fingerprints by the literally uh, millions, I suppose, of numbers, and there are no two of them exactly alike. I've heard, and I suppose it's true, that out of the billions of snowflakes that come down in any given snowstorm, there are no two snowflakes exactly alike. That's hard to believe, but they say that it's true. And even though we all have noses and eyes and ears, and we have a certain number of hairs on our head, and we have a certain skeletal framework, and there's a certain way the skin is stretched over some of our faces, and some of us that have been fortunate to have the skin stretched over our faces in a more pleasing manner than others of us, where we just sort of paste it on there or something, get all vain about that. We don't realize that we owe it to our parents, or we ought to be thankful to God because maybe we weren't behind the door uh, when the beauty was passed out. But we are all different. There are no two noses on the face of the earth that are exactly alike. And so we are all, in that sense, unique. I have a ring that is very lovely. I have some large diamonds in it. One of them I purchased for $300 back in the late 1950s, and it's 1.61 carats, if you can believe that kind of a bargain. It was an unwanted old mine cut, an old antique diamond that was out of vogue, the kind that they used to have years ago in the 1800s when they ground off the bottom of it where they let the light through the bottom. Today, it's got to be worth a lot more money than that. But I only paid $300 for that. A diamond is very, very rare. But you know, if diamonds were as common as gravel, then we would have diamonds paving the roads and we would stockpile diamonds for the county road department, and we'd all be wearing gravel on our fingers. I mean, stop to think about that. It has to do with the rarity of it. Uh, For example, if gold were as common as gravel, then we would be wearing gravel rings, and by the same token, as I said, with diamonds, and perhaps we would be having uh, all sorts of jewelry around our necks and in our ears that would be made out of gravel. 
I am sort of a collector of sorts. I don't have any large collections of anything, but I know my brother was very fascinated by stamps. He had started a pretty impressive stamp collection prior to his death. Collectors prize old and rare things like old first edition books or magazines or journals. I have about eight or ten copies of Outdoor Life from 19, I believe, about 1919, 1920, 1921, along in there. Fascinating articles about fishing and hunting, and the old pictures are in there, and there are Winchesters for sale for five dollars, you know. It just blows my mind to look at some of the ads in those old Outdoor Life, Life magazines and wish that that were still true today. Do you know that even old comic books, some of the first editions of Superman are actually worth hundreds of thousands of dollars today, and I used to own those. I used to buy them for a dime when I'd go mow the lawn. I have had millions of dollars slip through my fingers. I didn't know the bubblegum wrappers in 1934 were, were worth money. I didn't know the baseball cards I traded when I was seven years of age in Eugene, Oregon would be worth money someday with Babe Ruth and Roger Maris. Well, Roger Maris wasn't coming along yet, but Babe Ruth and uh, Lou Gehrig and some of those faces on my baseball cards. And if I had one of those today, I would have something that is so rare because there's so few of them that survived that I would have something that would be worth an awful lot of money. Now, if you had a famous original painting, you'd have something that is absolutely rare, isn't it? Because there's only one like it. I have painted a number of paintings, and all of them are originals. Some of them are very bad. Most of them are very bad. A few of them are fair, and maybe one or two are almost good. None of them are really great. I mean, I, I know that about my paintings. That's why I hang them on my own wall or some of the office walls and don't really force other people to look at them if they don't wish to. But they are originals, and there's only one of a kind. I have a couple of three lamps that I've designed, and there's no other lamp just like those lamps. They're absolute originals. When I look into some of these art magazines like Southwestern Art, I will find that I can buy a print and it's called numbered and remarked. If it's just numbered, it's a certain amount, like $100. If it's remarked, it's like 250 because remarked means that not only is it numbered, meaning a limited edition of only 1,000 or so that have been allowed to be printed of this original beautiful painting, but the artist himself has come along and signed every one of the prints or the copies. And then you can get this gesso stuff or whatever you see through it and kind of put that on it and put it in a frame, and it looks for all the world like the original, and some of them can be several hundred dollars, only for... A copy. Now, nothing is more common today than human beings. Human beings are as common as gravel. There are more than one billion Chinese. When you go to China, you wish there just weren't so many of them. As they say in Texas, you can't stir those people with a stick. Now, I've been to India. I've been over there where the throngs of people are so thick that literally there's just no room for anything, where the minute the construction crew comes along and dumps a sewer pipe on the ground, a family moves into it, and where people are in competition with cattle for the barest means of survival. If you can imagine, what are we now, 300, 300, a little bit more than that, maybe 310 million in the United States. I haven't got the latest census statistics, but back when I was a teenager, we had about 200 million Americans. Now it's 300 and some odd million Americans. But there are more than one billion Chinese. That's more than a thousand million Chinese, if you can imagine that. And how many hundreds of millions? Well, of course, India is about three times the size of the United States, and there are countless hundreds of millions of Indians, of people in Bangladesh, Java, in the Dutch East Indies, formerly called, now Indonesia, 
is the most heavily populated or densely populated part of the earth where people, I forget how many per square mile, but there just is hardly any room to sit down in some of these places. They're just overridden with human beings. Nothing is more common than human beings. And yet, I want to tell you about the rarest kind of a human being, and if you want a title on what I'm talking about today, it is limited editions, because that's what we are. We happen to be a limited edition of humanity. And there are certain rare human beings I want to tell you about, but first let's take a look at the common man, as common as gravel, over in Romans, the third chapter, beginning in verse 10. Here the Apostle Paul is quoting from back in the Psalms. It is written that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. This is David crying out in dismay that the world was in that condition and that mankind generally is in the condition of carnality, of complete ignorance, of superstition, of pursuing his own material things, his own appetites and pleasures, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, that's a pretty rare human being. Matter of fact, so rare that he can't be found, there just aren't any. There aren't any limited editions that David is talking about. He is complaining there just wasn't anybody around that sought after God who basically could be called righteous or good. Their throat is an open sepulcher, meaning the words that come out of some people's mouths are just as devastating as a tomb or a grave and brings about the death of people. With their tongues, they have used deceit. We've read about Diotrephes who prated against John and with malicious words spoke all sorts of subtleties which tried to pollute and wreck and destroy the reputation of an apostle of Almighty God and did so to about half or so of his congregation who remained with him when he put the other people out. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And you might as well say that this is the nation of India, Bangladesh, China, the nation of the Philippines under Marcos, etc. Destruction, misery, poverty, squalor, sickness, disease for the common people, and opulence on a scale that is so titanic it is monstrous for the privileged few. If you read the latest edition of Newsweek magazine about Imelda Marcos and the unbelievably gross appetites of that woman who was a sort of a fringe uh, flesh pot dancer, a sort of a semi-starlet who in 11 days courtship married Marcos and her fortunes went straight up from that time on. For pity's sake, the woman had thousands of pairs of shoes. Thousands of handbags, many of them from Gucci, with the paper still inside and the price tag. They had to build great wooden racks on the walls of closets about as big as this room to begin to contain them all. This was avarice. This was gluttony. This was lust on a, a, a monstrous scale. And you ought to read the article because it's unbelievably embarrassing. It's shameful beyond belief that such people can be allowed to hold sway over governments and countries that they can loot a whole store. I mean, they told about shopping trips. She would come into New York or maybe to Hermes or Gucci's in Rome, Hermes in Paris or some of the great stores in London. She went to a bookstore in New York City one time and just went along the shelves and took every second or every third book. 
and told the director of the bookstore, oh, pick me out some pretty ones, meaning limited editions, meaning leather-bound, gold-embossed, leather-covered, beautiful, old, old, antique books, and just box it up and send me a few million dollars' worth. Wanted decoration on the shelf. You'd want to read them. Never read a line, never perused a quarter of the lineage of one of them, but she bought those books by the millions of dollars. And where did the dollars come from? Well, the dollars were stolen from a poverty-stricken people. There are plenty of that kind of people around the earth. The way of peace, you can look at Isaiah 59, have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. And finally, he says in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, then, carnality is common. Now, carnality is like gravel. It's almost everywhere present. Gravel can be made out of the rocks behind me or the rocks under our feet beneath this building. You can go out and scoop up rocks anywhere out here and crush them into gravel. They're just as common as they can be. Things like nice, G-N-E-I-S-S, not N-I-C-E, and the old gray kind of ugly rocks that they crush to make roadways out of. Very, very common. What has been happening to many people in God's church, especially a very large organization from which I am sort of a refugee, is that they have been stockpiling gravel. They have been accumulating gravel, collecting it, hoarding it, paying inordinate amounts of money for it, spending a lot of time on it, stockpiling gravel, and perhaps have forgotten about something that is absolutely precious in God's sight because it is so rare. Over in the 116th Psalm in verse 15, I want to show you something about the way Almighty God looks at those things which are a very rare value, something God prizes very, very dearly. Here David is praying, I love the Eternal because he's heard my voice and my supplications. He says in verse 5, Gracious is the Eternal and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. And in the 116th Psalm in verse 15, he says, Precious in the sight of the Eternal is the death of his saints. What does God actually say when someone who has made it through life, who has literally been converted, which is the rarest of all things, has given his heart to Almighty God, has allowed Almighty God to rule him, has crushed the carnal vanity out of him, has held sway over his life, an individual who has offered himself as a living sacrifice to God and through the peaks and valleys of spiritual work and effort and toil and endeavor, making his mistakes, stumbling, every now and then getting up and trying to dust himself off with God's help and pick himself up and go along again, calling upon God for forgiveness when he sins. But finally, at the end of his life, he is one of God's saints, and in some way or another he dies. And when that occurs, Almighty God says, perhaps in our vernacular we might imagine, that he said, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Oh, good, I've got another one. I have another one, secure unto me, that I will never lose, because as long as he is alive, he can still make a decision that will abort this process that is going on, and instead of a beautiful, fabulous member of my family, 
Instead of another beautiful son to join me in my kingdom, it could be an ugly miscarriage. How many of you saw 2020 the other night? It was fascinating. I mean, it absolutely brought tears to my eyes. It was just a fabulous show in which they had the birth filmed for the first time ever, I guess, of a successful birth in captivity and a successful survival of a killer whale down in Orlando, Florida, I think, at SeaWorld. And it showed the story of how they had actually taken this huge, many thousands of pounds mammal that I guess was so big that she'd be, oh, from here to the wall over there and huge, big, round, black and white. You know, they look so dressed up and so sleek and uh, like shaped like a big, fat bullet the way they go through the water. And these trainers, knowing that this female orca or killer whale was expecting and knowing that formerly they had always been rejected in captivity, they would not, not allow the baby to nurse. So they began stroking her along the area of the mammary glands and swimming, swimming along with her. And then they would actually train another big killer whale to come up and swim along with her, nuzzling her in the area of the mammary gland so that she would get accustomed to that and actually enjoy it as a pleasurable experience so she would not chase her own newborn calf away. It actually showed the birth of that little baby. It showed her just going through, just making these twisting, writhing motions in labor. Showed that little baby come out, little, 350 pounds at birth. And immediately that little tail began doing this, and he swam up to the top of the tank and took his first breath, and you're looking at an absolute miracle occurring. And then he swam to his mother's mammary gland and began nursing. And they said that the mother's milk is about as rich as ice cream. And in a matter of three weeks or so, the baby's weight had doubled, and now it weighed about 700 pounds. And it was fabulous, just the most incredible film. I would love to be able to get that entire film clip and just preserve it and have it, where maybe sometime when I'm doing a program on the existence of God and anti-evolution, I can just ask people about how that happens and how that little, they call it a calf, you know, or a little baby girl, in this case, female, killer whale, was able to immediately swim up and get a breath of air, and how it knew exactly where to go to get nourishment, and how all that could happen that way. But you know, it was so fascinating, and I was comparing notes with my sons, uh, David Matthew, at dinner last night, and they were telling me that they had seen it too, and that they actually got so excited that when the little baby was born, they broke out into a cheer and applause right there in their own living room. I said, I did the same thing. I said, I sat there in my own room, and when that little baby was born, I cheered and applauded, for pity's sake. And I'm watching television of the live birth of just a killer whale. But the killer whale, he looks so uh, svelte, so dressed up, like he's wearing a black and white tuxedo, and got such a beautiful, you know, glistening, smooth, almost torpedo-shaped body with huge, big rows of perfectly round, glistening, sharp teeth. But they're so docile among human beings. And Hugh Downs actually got on this big animal and took a ride on it. And it showed them taking a man all the way to the bottom of the tank and just balancing him on their nose and just hurling him up about 30 feet in the air and diving back into the tank. It was just magnificent. You talk about a limited edition. That is the first time ever in the history of man, so far as we know, that there has been a successful birth and survival of a killer whale in captivity. Now, if I could get that carried away at watching a little dolphin, I should, I should say killer whale being born, guess how excited I was up at Big Sandy in the clinic one time 
When I didn't get to see Mark's birth, I was in what is called the stork room, where they made you pace back and forth with all the others, and at that time I was still smoking. Uh, God gave me the courage, and perhaps he gave me the fright that I needed by causing a terrible case of laryngitis, or maybe I just got it accidentally, I don't know, some months later after Mark's birth. But at that time I was still smoking. And so I'm smoking and pacing with all the others in the stork room. My wife is down the hallway somewhere in labor having my firstborn son. I didn't get to experience the same thing with her that I did later on when first David and then Matthew were born. But you know, some people say that they wouldn't be of any help to their wives at all, stretched out cold, fainting dead away on the stone or the terrazzo floor of the delivery room, so they just choose not to go in and, and be with their wife when their baby is born. But let me tell you, there is nothing like it in this world to be present with your wife when she is having labor. Then you finally know what it is you're, you're, you're doing here, you know, what you've caused your wife, the kind of pain and agony and suffering that is involved in bringing forth a child into this earth. But you also experience the greatest high, I guess, of the very few highs of all of life when you see your own flesh and blood coming into this world, taking its first breath, being put on the breast of its mother, crying with its little voice, and you say, with your voice breaking and tears in your eyes, honey, it's another boy. You know, I guess we got to keep it. We wanted a girl, but we've been happy ever since, and we've had three sons. Now, I get an opportunity every now and then at a moment when I'm kind of mellow and laid back with my sons just to be thankful and grateful and to thank God for them and for the incredibly warm and loving relationship that I have with them. And I had such an occasion yesterday evening, and I was just counting my blessings, the fact that I have some limited editions called Mark, David, and Matthew, and thinking about what they mean to me. And uh, it is just a feeling that I think Almighty God wants us to have of the value of our own children and of what we believe is their worth. What is their value? And I was having to think back at how my brother was killed in an automobile accident, and recently Mark lost a friend that he knew, and I knew vaguely, a fellow that worked over at Channel 7 named Tracy, was killed on a, on a motorcycle wreck, slid right underneath an 18-wheeler and just tore him up. He lived only a very short while, grievously injured, and died. And that's a very shocking, sickening experience. We have a family, they moved, but they lived in a little place called the Wharf, who is, which is a little uh, kind of a fish bait place that was turned in at one time to a gas station, a little restaurant, and they have little boat stalls and so on. And right there, there's a bridge that goes across a neck of Lake Palestine, right near where I live. This couple had a little apartment upstairs in this two-story old gray clapboard building, and the bridge is in view right out their window. And on the 4th of July last year, their son had been there, and he'd been drinking a little bit, and he'd gone across to Coffee City to Cherokee County to get some more to drink, I guess, and to come back. And there was a lot of traffic out around the lake. And as he came back in a little small, one of these mini pickups, a couple of cars were passing. There were several cars on a bridge, and he was going pretty fast. And he swerved and hit the brakes and lost control and went through that guardrail and did a complete flip and was thrown out of the vehicle, and he and the vehicle disappeared into the lake. Well, his parents were right over there, and they had heard something and heard the screech of tires and heard a grinding, rending sound, didn't know what was happening. And they saw that an accident had occurred, and after a while, police cars and an ambulance and others came, and they just stood there. And somehow, she said she had a premonition, and she said, 
I think that's my son. Well, they went down there, and when they saw that truck as it was being raised out of the water, it was his. And that couple had to sit on that front porch and watch for hours as divers searched in vain, and it took them hours to find their son's body and drag him out of that lake. A very few weeks later, they went back where they had come from to Louisiana. They could not stand to live in that house and to look out that window at that lake anymore. Now, I think I know what they went through, but I really don't, do I? Unless you have lost a child, you don't have the faintest idea of the value of your child. Now, I wonder if we can imagine for a moment a little bit about our great Creator God in heaven as we turn to the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we can imagine what it meant to Almighty God when He sent to this earth by their mutual agreement a very much limited edition, because like the Western song says, there is only one. Jesus Christ. There was only one member of the God family that came down to this earth to be made into a human being. God, who at different times, sundry times, and in different manners, spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, Hebrews 1 and verse 1, hath in these last days spoken unto us by. Notice the word his is in italics in the King James. It really should not be his, although that's admissible, because it maybe tends to say that there can ever be there can never be more than one. It really should say a son, a son. But it was his only son, his only begotten son, and his only son then. So that's admissible, all right, by the translator. Just a point of technical uh, technical interest in passing. Spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of everything, heir of all things, by whom or through whom also he made the worlds who, being the brightness of his glory, and the express image, the exact stamped impress, or the exact perfect replica, an exact copy of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had had by himself purged our sins, and I have emphasized that in the past, Christ had to do it all alone in the last moments of his life when he flung himself on the ground headlong and prayed to God several times, please work it out some other way. Don't make me go through this. Please, if you can remove this cup from me, until great tears came to his eyes and his sweat was just dripping down and he was actually trembling with the exertion of throwing himself into that plea, that prayer, please don't let him have to suffer what he knew was ahead of him. And yet finally, when nothing but silence came to him from heaven, he said, Nevertheless, thy will be done, and marched out to be arrested and to be beaten within an inch of his life and crucified. That's why it says, as it does, when he had by himself. Now, himself is unique. Himself is an expression that means all alone. Only one of him. It wasn't an army of people for you. It wasn't thousands or millions. It wasn't a whole lot of deaths to make up for your sins. It wasn't a whole lot of lives that were given because your one life is so important. It was one life uniquely in all of history that is worth all those more than one billion Chinese and all of the other three and a half billion human beings on this earth because he made the first parents 
and through him began all human life and all vegetable life and all plant life and all animal and insect life and even those great killer whales and every other creature in which we can stand in awe and to see like elephants or rhinoceroses or tigers or what have you and marvel at God's creation. Christ did all of that. He made it all. It was his handiwork and his creation, and he came down and sacrificed himself for it and did so all by himself, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made, or as it should say, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance, because it was his lot, because it is what God promised him, he has already inherited what we are told in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans that we are to inherit, and we are called co-heirs with Christ. He has already inherited. The will, you might say, in his case, has been probated. The will, or the New Testament, and that's what the word will means, last will and testament, last will, the new will, the new codicil, the new legal document of the New Testament, has been inscribed in a signature written in blood. If we put our signature to it, our name can be filled in in the blank place, then at the time of our death, which is precious in the sight of the eternal, we then have good, have secured to us, awaiting probate at the time of our resurrection or the second coming of Christ, eternal life and the same heritage, the same inheritance that Christ received. For under which of the angels, even though they are powerful, invisible spirits that are greater and more power than all humanity put together, perhaps, which of these did he ever say, You are my son. This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. He said that at the time of Christ's birth. Is it any wonder, then, we have the scene at the time even of conception, that I have mentioned briefly in passing that may find its roots in the ancient observance called St. Michael Mass in Britain and northwestern uh, Europe and clear back to the Middle East. It had something to do with the December 25th period of time that the angels by the millions were singing and that there were angels that were playing with heavenly harps. And you see the picture that we as a church have tended to ignore and to avoid because you see the Protestants own those scriptures. The Protestants always want to pay attention to Christmas, and we don't. That's pagan, that's ugly. So how many times have you, at any season of the year at all, wouldn't be right to do it at December 25th, would it? But how many times have you sat in a church of God and heard a sermon going through the incredible exaltation of the angelic forces in heaven above at the conception of Christ, at the Annunciation to Mary, by an archangel, that she was going to bring forth a child? And the moment when that birth was announced, and when she and her cousin Elizabeth met together later on, and the two babes leapt in the womb, and her own, as it's called, Magnificat, or the Spirit-inspired, almost like a poem that came out of her mouth, Thy handmaiden, etc., and that you have shown mercy unto thy, ma that thy maidservant, and on and on, the great thing that she said having to do with the fact that she was to be the mother of the very individual who was a member of the God family, and therefore, in that sense, the mother of God. Well, we don't want to use that term either, do we? Because the Catholics own that term, and that would be worship of Mary. But oftentimes I think we do not show that woman the honor that Almighty God does. And neither do we rejoice and exult in the instant of his conception or of his birth, because we feel constrained not to show that emotion, because that 
was pagan. Well, there is no special observance in the Bible that is set apart that we're supposed to observe to observe his birth. I understand that. But if we cannot exalt in the fact of his birth and understand it, and if there is one part of the Bible we should avoid because someone else got there first, please tell me which part that is. I thought the Word of God belonged, all of it, to all of us, to God's true church, and that we were not to ignore or to avoid it. And of the angels, he saith, in verse 7, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, or as the margin says, rightness. That which is right, not wrong, but right, correct, good, pure, beautiful, is the scepter of your kingdom. It's not a sword. It's not a mace. You know, the scepter of the British Empire is a mace, but it has a huge orb or a diamond in it. The scepters that kings wear nearly always would look like a weapon, like a sword or a club or a hook or uh, maybe a harquebusier or something of this nature with a spear point on it or a blade on it of some sort. But this is the scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated sin, lawlessness, iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Interesting language. What does that mean? It means he has poured out the Holy, the Holy Spirit on Jesus Christ above measure, above that which has ever been given to any human being before or since. But it also characterizes that oil, which is a type of God's Holy Spirit, as the oil of happiness the oil of gladness, the oil of appreciation, the oil of rejoicing, of joy. And what is the Holy Spirit to bring forth in us? Love, joy, peace. Interesting that the anointing that was upon Christ is called the oil of gladness. Now, look at people in God's church today and ask yourself how much gladness is there, how much happiness. How much joy, how much exuberance, how much zeal, how much ebullience. The oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They shall perish, but you remain. They shall all wax old as a garment does. And as a vesture you will fold them up, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. But to which of the angels did he say at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are not they, the angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? I want to read just a few more verses that are very important. I would like to read the entirety of the second chapter, but for lack of time I will not do it. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, says Paul, lest at any time we let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, under the old covenant it certainly did, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, you know, if you've got a beautiful yard, all you've got to do to have the most magnificent crop of weeds you've ever seen is just neglect it. Just walk away and leave it alone. If you've got a flower garden and you want weeds instead of flowers, just neglect it. If you've got a face, and you want a beard, and I'm not making fun of anybody because I can do the same thing, just 
neglect it until you need to pick up the scissors and then trim it, which Mr. Watkins and Mr. Brazil and many other people do. And Christ, by the way, had a beard. I am not going to be nailed on that one. I believe Christ had a beard, and he had a neatly trimmed one like these two gentlemen have. But I perhaps shouldn't bring in that analogy because that's just one human analogy. But, you know, we can do anything with regard to an automobile or a piece of fine machinery or a Swiss watch or your home and the paint on it, the shingles on it, or any else that anything you might talk about that is physical in nature, whether it is a growing thing in a plant world or whether it is your dog that you don't bother to train or to housebreak and simply neglect it and let it go and it runs down and it becomes uh, rusty and it won't run anymore. I, by habit now, I have a watch that is not very modern. I bought this in 1960, and i got to wind this one. I'm not aware of when I do it. I do it every morning. I do it every now and then when I'm walking along. I don't know I'm winding my watch. It's a matter of habit. But if I neglect to wind my watch, it's as useless, even though it's beautiful, as anything else I might strap on my wrist, just a piece of leather or a chain of gold. It doesn't tell me anything. But if I don't neglect to wind it up, it keeps running, and I can find out what time it is. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Many people neglect salvation. It's there. It's right there for them to receive. Christ has been calling them, been knocking on the door, been grabbing them by the hand, doing everything but kicking them in the pants for years. And they pay no attention. I know of people, many thousands of them, who have been told and who have been made to believe and they've actually given, been given this cliché out of the pulpit many, many times. Who told you salvation is easy? Boy, I'd love to grab somebody by the shirt front about the time he says that. Not hurt him, but just get his attention. And say, Christ did. Huh? You know, then turn over here. Come unto me, ye that are laden, that are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. We look at it as a heavy burden. And Christ himself said his yoke, he acknowledges it's a yoke. And when you put it on, you know there's a yoke there. But he says that is easy. And the burden is light because you compare the reward that is coming. The church has been ashamed to admit to its members that the Ethiopian eunuch who said, What hindereth me to be baptized? And when Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you may. And he said, I believe. And they went down into the water and he was baptized. And all it took was that belief. And as I see, as I look through the Bible time and again, as I'm going to show you in a few moments before closing here, how much there is said about the efficacy of that belief and of that acceptance as opposed to long study courses and periods of waiting and six months of wondering whether you're worthy to take the Passover and being told, well, you're in suspension or you shouldn't come back until you overcome this habit and get good enough to join in with the rest of us. I'm amazed at the many, many scriptures there are in the Bible that have to do with belief in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as your Savior, who will forgive you, and when you accept him, you can be saved. We want to put a lot of other things to it. Sure, it's true you need to obey God. And yes, it's true you need to know what is sin. But we must not submerge the message of repentance toward Jesus Christ and acceptance of him as our Savior by a lot of falderall and months and months of legalistic teaching. The important thing is conviction in the heart. God will lead you to all of the knowledge you need. He'll lead you to the understanding. If you have the Holy Spirit, you won't be in rebellion against God's laws anymore anyway. 
every new point of God's Word that He tells you is something you ought to do, the Holy Spirit's going to say, you'll accept that with alacrity. You will love it. You'll rejoice in it. You won't resist it. You'll only resist it if you're carnal. But you won't resist it if you have God's Holy Spirit. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by us or unto us by them that heard him? I want to hurry along a little bit. In Proverbs 3 and verse 13, up to verse 15, I won't read all of that, is something that has to do with the family. Proverbs 3, and I'll just pick out this one verse perhaps. Speaking of wisdom, too, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, and perhaps I won't have time to do that, talking about the rarity, as we know, in the very last chapter of the book of Proverbs, of a wife who is the kind of a wife that the Almighty God wants every woman to be in the 31st chapter. But here it says, My son, despise not the chastening of the eternal, verse 11, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. Verse 14, the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you can desire are not to be compared to her. We don't believe it. I mean, basically, in our carnal minds, with a part of our being, we just don't believe it. It is true, but we basically do not believe it. Our, our temptation in our human flesh is to equate rubies, diamonds, money, fat wallets and big bank accounts, uh, Cadillacs and sports cars, uh, all kinds of possessions, beautiful homes, etc., etc., as being those things which we seek and those things which are precious and those things which are to be desired. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, the building of character, being the kind of a person that Jesus Christ was, we tend a little bit away from that. We tend toward the commonality of gravel, rather, toward the preciousness of gold. Look at Jeremiah 15 for a moment. Here Jeremiah is in the midst of one of his oft laments, Jeremiah the 15th chapter. He is saying to God in verse 10, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. And he was complaining with his lot in life, because his own brethren, the king on down, the princes of the nation, had held him in contempt, and he was in fear of his life. God says, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction, which is true. He was released by the enemy that attacked Jerusalem, besieged it, captured Jeremiah, took him out of the dungeon, out of prison, whence his own king had subjected him. And then he was allowed, as it says in verse 14, to pass with your enemies into a land which you know not. A little later on he said, O Eternal, you know, remember me and visit me. In verse 15, take not me not away in thy long suffering. Verse 17, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for you have filled me with indignation, meaning the message that he portrayed to Israel. Why is my pain perpetual, and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? That's pretty strong language when a person appeals to God, as Jeremiah did in his anguish. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, If you return, then will I bring thee again and you shall stand before me. And if you shall take forth the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth, 
You've got to know the difference between gravel and gold. You've got to know what is precious and what is vile. And he said, don't return unto them, meaning the princes of Israel and the king and his own constituency and everybody who was bad-mouthing him in that nation. I will make thee unto this people, verse 20, a fenced brazen wall, and they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you, says the Eternal, and I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you out of the hand of the terrible, which he did, and Jeremiah survived, and the people who derided him went into prison. The king had his eyes plucked out, and the last thing he saw before his blindness descended upon him in anguish and pain was his own son's bodies run through with a javelin. Then they stuck his eyes out, and he lived with that in his mind for the rest of his life. And Jeremiah, who had, who had absolutely said, your wife and daughters are going to be sold into harlotry, and your sons are going to die before your eyes, and this nation is going down, was put into a dungeon because he was a man of God who in good conscience gave that message to the people and was hated by the leadership. They didn't roll out the red carpet for Jeremiah, but God saved him, and the prophecies came to pass exactly as God said they would. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 7, it says that there is a trial of our faith which is to come, and it says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. A little later on in the end of the first chapter, he says in verse 22, Seeing you purified, have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. With a pure heart fervently. I have seen in my last years, last decade or so of my life, that people within the church of God who have been some of the deepest, closest personal friends. I mean, you can't have personal friends any closer than I have been to many men with whom I went hunting for 20 solid years. You can't sit over the dozens of campfires I have, travel the millions of miles, go all around the world. And I did go completely around the world with one man that pops into my mind and share the most intimate details of your life, your hopes, aspirations, dreams, your frustrations, hurts, and worries. You can't get closer. In many ways, I was closer because of the years of affiliation and fellowship that I had with some of these people I'm talking about than I ever was with my own brother because we didn't have that many years together. And yet, because we believe the same thing, maybe 6,947 principles, we believe exactly the same. We believe the holy days, we believe the Sabbath, we believe about tithing, the identity of Israel, the basic scenario of prophecy, baptism, the judgment, the millennium, the kingdom of God on this earth, everything basically in the word of God, we believe the same. But because of an artificial decree by a man who paid their salary, who said, he's out, I have not had a telephone call, I have not had a visit. I've not even had a card in eight long years. Now, when I read words that tell me that I must purify my soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit into unfeigned love of my brother in the church of God, unpretentious, unfeigned, not put on, 
and that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Sometimes I pause and I wonder. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever, for all flesh is as grass, common as grass, common as gravel. And all the glory of man is the flower of grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away. But look at the next scripture. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Well, then the word is not the gospel. The gospel is the vehicle, the message which gets your attention about the fact that Christ is the Son of God, that he died, he was crucified, that he has been resurrected and has been uh, risen to go into the right hand of the Father in heaven. And this is the word of the Lord, meaning the entirety of the Bible, the word of God, a way of life that he's given to us, which by the gospel is preached unto you. Then he goes on to say, laying aside all malice, and guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious. That's quite a word, isn't it? Precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the eternal was the death of his son. Because up until the last instant, as he was on the stake, he never deviated from his course. And with his last utterance came the capstone, the crowning achievement of forgiveness that any human being could ever utter. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How can you love someone who is sticking a spear in your side? Tell me that. I know people who hate me because of minor little doctrinal differences when we believe 47 numbered doctrines the same and one little doctrine a little bit different and they hate me because of it. Tell me how does that work? How does it happen that way? How can it be true? When Jesus Christ on the stake said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. No wonder Almighty God says, precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. You as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. Notice how many times he repeats that. Precious. And he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. We think diamonds are precious, and rubies are precious, and gold is precious, and million dollars, a million dollars is precious. Christ is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they're also appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a precious or peculiar, specific, separate, unique people, collectively and individually. There is only one of you, and there is only one body of Jesus Christ. And that is a spiritual organism, remember, not a political organization. 
that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. You know, the rarest kind of a breed there is on the face of the earth. Let me tell you about the common man quickly in closing. The common man we read of in Romans 3.10 is a human being that is walking this earth just exactly the way I did for the first 22 years, 23 years of my life. It was filled with avarice, with cunning, with lust, with greed, with ego, vanity, jealousy, hatred, who is egotistical, who is pompous, who is vain, who hates, who perhaps uh, uses all sorts of foul expressions and etc. He is carnal, earthy, fleshly of this earth. But he's like gravel. There are so many millions of him. Men and women alike on this earth, completely deceived, unknowing, uncaring, completely oblivious to the plan of salvation and the work of Almighty God. But here and there, among all these billions of human beings on this earth, there is found a rare first edition, a rare, almost the rarest of all commodities on the face of the earth. And we can turn in conclusion to Isaiah 66 to find who that individual is. The rarest thing in this earth, believe it or not, brethren, is for a human being to become completely, totally converted. To be conquered of God, to allow the Holy Spirit of God to rule in his mind and his heart, to be completely altered and changed and to become, instead of carnal and contemptuous and hypocritical and avaricious and cunning and greedy, jealous, bitter, and filled with hatred, instead to have the kind of love and to the point of the magnificent forgiveness I've described of Christ on the cross, God says, thus says the Eternal, verse 1 of Isaiah 66, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Eternal. But to this man will I look. God's eyes will be on this man or woman, this person, this human being. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, meaning poor spiritually, emotionally, mentally, humble, cast down, contrite, meek, a person who is not egotistical, vain, and proud poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. The word of God causes him to fear, to tremble, to tremble to disobey it, not in terror, but in awe, in great respect, in trembling fear. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb, because God says, away with your sacrifices, I want nothing to do with them. This only did I say, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be with my people. He said, all of the cattle of Lebanon are not fit to burn. He said he didn't want sacrifices originally. This only did I say, obey my voice. He that sacrifices a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offers an oblation is as if he offered pig's blood. He that burns incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will choose their delusions, I will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they didn't hear, but they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. Now, I want to ask you, what in the world this next verse means? Of whom does this speak? Why was this written? For what time is this scripture intended? 
Hear the word of the Eternal, ye that tremble at his word, and will not compromise with it, and will not use it for political purposes, and will not rest it or twist it, but will tremble before it. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Eternal be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. I wonder why. That scripture is in the Bible. I happen to believe that you and that I are limited editions, that we are rare in God's sight, that we are among those who are called God's saints. Mr. Carruthers, it's very sad that he died of a heart attack the other day, but I know the quality of the man's character and the kind of a man he was, a black man, a leader among God's people, a converted man, a fine man. God did not cry when Mr. Carruthers, Cecil Carruthers, was taken from his family. He said, oh boy, I've got me one more. He's in my kingdom. And I hope that's what God says when it's my turn.